wanted to give you a heads up about today's episode. It comes with a content warning. In our conversation, we will be talking about maternal health and pregnancies, complications from pregnancies, and even a little bit of symptoms and some of the challenges that come with that. So it is not appropriate for young ears. If you have slightly older children up through the teenage years, you may want to preview this yourself before deciding if you think it is appropriate for them to hear. That said, I found this to be an incredibly helpful conversation with information for those of us who have either been close to or know someone who experienced a Uh, death or near-death experience in pregnancy and childbirth. So if any of this is sensitive for you, I recommend that you may just want to go straight to the resource, the show notes page rather, and see some places that you may want to look up. And I hope that if you do listen, it's helpful and you find something useful to carry on or to share with someone else. And with that, on to the episode. Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of the Older and Boulder podcast. My name is Krista Overly. I'm your host. And today I am joined by Anne Garrett. And this is a really fun and special conversation today because Well, before I get into her bio, I'm just going to drop the truth bomb that she and I have known each other for decades. So (laughs) when I, when we caught up recently, I um, was hearing Anne's story and I said, Anne, you've got to come on the podcast and share this. So let me tell you a little bit about Anne and then I'll let her tell you more about her. So Anne has over 20 years of experience in philanthropy, fundraising, nonprofit startup, and management, and most recently in Anchorage, Alaska at Alaska Public Media. She began her philanthropy work, philanthropy work, following a personal health crisis and the launch of her first nonprofit, the Preeclampsia Foundation, in 1999. Anne went on to found the Unexpected Project in 2012, a national campaign to raise awareness and share the voices of survivors of maternal death and near miss in the USA. An award-winning artist, writer, and musician, Anne is currently working on finishing her memoir about her advocacy work. So Anne, welcome to the podcast. I'm so glad we get a chance to talk today and hear about your story and so many good things. Thanks, Krista. It's fun to be here. So I feel like we could almost jump right in. Sure. Um, I I want to back up a little bit and and just say, you know, you started two nonprofits, the Pre Preeclampsia Foundation, and then the Unexpected Project, which is it's not a uh, it's it's not exactly the topic I would normally bring, but I love that you only really did 
the the unexpected project fairly recently, within ten within the last ten years. And so, can you tell us your story? You can go back a ways if you want, like what happened before. I would love to hear about that. And I'm sure the listeners would too. Um, tell us the story about how that all got started. Sure. So um, I um, was never particularly ambitious. I was a school teacher, an artist and writer and um, mom of four kids. Um, actually, when I had my third kid is when this all sort of started. I had a, had a near-death experience in 1996. Uh, shortly after my son was born, I basically died on the operating room table. Um, I came back and um, I was just different. I was completely different in that I was, I was really frustrated that somebody who had all the, um, you know, all the privileges that come with being an upper middle-class white woman. And yet still I nearly died. And I really hit me that um, anyone with, without that was really going to be in a, in a tough spot. So that got me, you know, thinking about preeclampsia, which is the reason I had my near death experience in 96. And then, um, I was assured that would never happen again. And my husband and I, at that time, we had three sons and my mother was dying of breast cancer and I'm the only daughter. So I really wanted to have a girl. And so I was easily talked into having a fourth pregnancy, um, and I went in and talked to the, you know, the high-risk doctor that I got, and he assured me I wasn't going to die and everything was going to be great. And that I was frankly a boring case. So we had um, a very well-managed and probably very expensive um, pregnancy, prenatal care, lots and lots of appointments and tests. And um, I was hypervigilant. And then um, we had a planned C-section at 36 weeks and everything went great and everybody was super proud of themselves and pat- patting themselves on the back. And then a week postpartum, I had another near miss. I had to go back into the emergency room. It took about six tries for them to get um, to get the blood, uh, not forget the IV into me. They were talking about doing um, a central line in the neck and they finally got it in and uh, it's, it was pretty scary because we had we had been so proud of ourselves that we had avoided this. So the next day I was talking to the doctor and I just was like, this is ridiculous. You know, um, we need to, I need to just send my check to somebody because my first husband was at Microsoft and we were doing quite well. Um, and that's, that's quite honestly exactly how I thought about it. I was like, I'll just send a check and then, um, you know, my part is done. And he said, there's no nonprofit. And I thought that was, crazy. I couldn't believe it. And so I did my due diligence. I researched and, and I couldn't find anything. So I thought, well, I'm a writer. I'm just going to write a really good website that helps women understand what preeclampsia is, break it down in a way that's um, manageable. And then, um, you know, then be done with it. And so I, I did that. And the first day the, the um, URL went live, we got an email from a woman saying, why aren't you doing more? Um, I had no idea that it would trigger such a strong um, response from people. We were, we just blew up on us. Um, the internet was relatively new. You know, I was really um, naive about all of this. I had no clue how to run a nonprofit. And uh, quite honestly, my marriage was ending. So I had my mother dying, my marriage is ending, and I'm starting a nonprofit. So I was a little bit crazy at the time. But I kept doing it because I felt really compelled um, 
And I did it as long as I could. I was I ran the organization until 2004, and then I stayed on the board until the end of 2006. Um, when I really had to step away, uh, my brothers were just like, you know, this is an expensive hobby. You need to get a regular job. You need to focus on things that are full of joy and get back to your life. And so I took their advice and um, I looked around to get a regular job. And really the only thing I knew how to do was sort of the nonprofit side of things. Because teaching um, with four kids was going to be hard to make enough money to pay for childcare, let alone, you know, anything else. So I went back to a regular life and I actually helped start four other nonprofits. I wasn't actually the founder of those, but I was like the founding CEO of the Microsoft Alumni Foundation and Lake Washington Schools Foundation and a couple others. And so I kind of got known as the person who starts nonprofits, um, at least in the Washington, in the Bellevue, Washington area. And then um, I just, I really, you know, I was really trying to step away from this, but what I couldn't step away from was the fact that I had somehow unbeknownst to me, become the go-to person to talk to when a woman died in pregnancy. And so even though I continued my life, I would still get calls from people saying, I understand, you know, and I was actually one of the few people willing to talk to these, you know, grieving widowers and the moms and, um, but I kept, you know, I was really like, I didn't really want to be doing this. I really just wanted to have a nice, normal life. Um, and so I think it was like 2012, I was, you know, I still kind of kept a toe in the water and I watched the space and I, you know, was a strong advocate for the Preeclampsy Foundation because they continued on without me quite successfully, actually. And um, and then in 2012, a woman who I did not know um, wrote a review of the top pregnancy books. She actually did this rigorous review of 50 pregnancy books. And she made rubrics and she identified, you know, where they were good at preeclampsia information and where they were not. And then she ranked them. And uh, what to expect when you're expecting was number 10. It was not number one. Number one was a book. I can't even remember the name of it, but number two was the Smart Mother's Guide to Pregnancy. And it had the best information about preeclampsia. For some reason, it was slightly less points than the number one. But at any rate, I reached out to this woman who I didn't know at all, but I knew she was a volunteer with the Preeclampsy Foundation. I just said, you know, as a writer, as somebody who had kind of a vision of what I wanted to do when I started this organization, it really makes, you know, my heart feel good that someone else has done something so well, you know, because it's so important because people think, oh, well, the pregnancy books will tell you. And quite honestly, they don't tell you. They don't you know, they're all sort of unicorns and rainbows and nothing bad happens. And so um, she had, you know, called that out in a very uh, eloquent and rigorous way. So we got to talking. Can I pause you for a second? I'm sorry to interrupt. (laughs) I realized I, I want, would you take a moment and Define preeclampsia for us or tell us what that that is just briefly, because I want to make sure people understand and how it is related to pregnancy? Sure. Okay, thanks. Um, yeah, no, it's um, it's a common cause of complications in pregnancy. It affects between 200 and 400,000 pregnancies a year, which is with five, mil- sorry, four million pregnancies a year. We're talking, you know, up to 10% of pregnancies can be complicated by hypertensive disorders. So it's a fairly common complication. It normally happens at the very end of the pregnancy, but it can happen as soon as 20 weeks. 
Um, some of the signs are swelling, you know, unusual swelling, like your face suddenly looks, you know, like a water balloon and your hands are swollen and your feet are swollen and you have a terrible headache and you have um, what they call proteinuria, which is when your, your pee essentially starts to get darker, like orange or brown. Um, but you can have none of those signs. So whenever women go in for a prenatal appointment, she gets her blood, you know, I mean, she gets her urine tested with a little proteinuria strip, which identifies whether or not she's getting preeclampsia. That's the only reason they take that urine is to look for preeclampsia. Yes, so few people know that. Um, your blood pressure is higher than normal. It can be a combo, a combo, sorry, a combination of all of these things. But the thing is that essentially your body only has so much capacity for for um, um, stress, and at some point that it just shuts down. So things like your, you can have a stroke, you can have a kidney failure, you can have liver failure, you can bleed out. Um, with a, what I had, which was called HELP syndrome, it was variant of preeclampsia, your blood doesn't clot. And so that's very dangerous when you have a C-section. So um, it's scary. It's um, sudden for, for the most part. It's very, you know, unexpected. <laughs> and it's something that um, is, uh, they're doing a really good job with the Preeclampsia Foundation with advocacy and getting uh, research and funding but it's still something that um, needs more conversation. And it's it's not something you can cause. You don't cause it by what you eat or and you can't cure it by what you eat or don't eat. And the only real um, cure is delivering the baby and the placenta. Um, and then even then you still have postpartum, such as I did, complications as your body is basically shedding the toxins or the stress that, preeclampsia caused. I'm probably not speaking completely medically accurately. I'm sure there's plenty of my knowledgeable well, preeclampsia friends know. For the lay <laughs> audience, I think that's quite, quite well said. I mean, we could definitely speak to, or maybe in the show notes, there's some references, resources, if people want sure. to know more, yep. we can give them. Yes. Yeah, so there's a lot of good Facebook groups for it. And preeclampsia is definitely the best out there. There's like 33 thousand women on that group and they are, you know, 24 seven and they give support and advice to people who are currently going through that or postpartum or considering a new baby. Um, it's a leading cause of prematurity, which of course is, it has its own issues and, um, it's a leading cause of maternal death in the U S one of the top five. So, um, so it's an important, um, issue, um, and something that, I hope I never have to experience again with anyone in my family, but unfortunately it's, it's fairly common. So, um, so yeah, so I started that and then I, I was done with it, I thought. And then, um, when I met Jen, um, we started talking about, um, about this, this sort of, I guess, gift I had for being the person that everybody called when someone died. Um, and, uh, I think maybe because like I was sharing with you earlier, uh, because I was with my mother and walked with my mother through that process as she died, I felt more comfortable talking to people about death than a lot of people do. So I would be the person who would talk about the elephant in the room. And as a result, um, Jed and I were talking about it and I was just saying, you know, 
so many um, women are dying in the U.S. And um, of course, it's not as bad as, as, you know, a third world country where you have, you know, horrible care or access to care or even um, women's rights where the she can't get, get to the hospital because the family or, won't take her there or doesn't think she's sick. I mean, it's hard enough if you're in a first world, world country and, and you don't recognize that you're sick, but if you can imagine if you're in another place. But the reality is we have third world conditions in many parts of the U.S. Hmm. We have, you know, we have, um, I think some of the states have no high-risk doctors, you know, don't even get me started about Texas, where, where there's mm. just a lot of, of challenges um, that interfere with women's access to care, um, prenatal um, and postpartum. So Jen and I were just talking and I realized I was still like really passionate about it. Like we were chatting and texting and chatting and texting. And I thought, gosh, this is just like still really bothering me. And then um, just kind of on a, on a, what's the lack of the better word for it? I don't, I don't want to say whim, but just kind of, we said, you know, we should do something maybe about this. And I had done a, a really great three-week screenwriters boot camp at this place, this fabulous place called the Film School. I'm not even sure it's still around, but it was started by Tom Skerritt, the actor from um, Top Gun and a couple other great guys. And it was a, this amazing three-week experience. And I was like, I'm going to make a film about maternal death in the U.S. And Jen and I were like, okay, we're going to do this. We're going to make a film. Because that's how naive I am. And so we um, <laughs> we decided to start a Facebook group, Unexpected Project. And um, just like at the last minute, I said, you know, in addition to the maternal death, what if we include women who almost die, like us? You know, because Jen was somebody who actually had a stroke and uh, collapsed in her kitchen floor. It was found three hours later and was in a coma for several days. So um, that really struck a nerve when we did that, when we opened it up again, it was just like back when the preeclampsia foundation started, all these people were just like, Oh, thank God. Somebody is talking about what happened to me because we're not supposed to talk about this. You know, we are not the women you invite to baby showers. We are not the women that mm. you say, Hey, tell me about your birth story because you don't want to know about our birth story. Mm. And as a result, we realized there were so many women. So I think it's something like 56,000 women a year have a near miss, almost died like me, which is a trauma. So when you, the numbers you gave earlier, you said affects about 200,000 to 400,000 yeah. pregnancies. So of those, then about how many, 50,000? 50, 56,000, but that, that includes all miss? kinds of near miss. So it could include, okay. um, there's, as I learned, I did not know, but as I learned, there were many other kinds of near misses. There's mm. um, an amniotic fluid embolism, which is mm. essentially an embolism that goes to the brain and you die immediately. Uh, pulmonary embolism, hemorrhage, that's the leading cause of women dying, which is just, um, they can't stop you from bleeding and that, mm. Um, unfortunately, is the end. And um, there is postpartum cardiomyopathy. Um, mm. There are plenty of women who have heart issues, ongoing heart issues. Um, 
And so we we didn't realize yet again, we walked into this kind of naively stepped into like, oh, we're going to do a film. And boom, we suddenly get smacked with, you know, all this, you know, data and women and trauma. And we kind of took a deep breath and, you know, regrouped and we started doing some interviews and filming. And we didn't we did not anticipate how it would affect us personally, you know, how listening to these women share their stories, stories that they had never been allowed to share or mm. very few people would let them share. And even if they shared it, they would share it in writing. They hadn't verbalized it. So mm. then we realized that, you know, by having them share it, we were actually potentially re-traumatizing them because we didn't mm. have the professional expertise to support them through this process. And we had women who were getting migraines and throwing up and, you know, shaking. And these are women 10 and 20 years out from their trauma. So, yeah. so then we kind of um, regrouped again because we wanted to keep doing this, but we wanted to do it in a way that was, that made things better. And I think the thing that for me with the unexpected project that got us started and was that I started the Preeclampsia Foundation so that women wouldn't feel alone. Mm. And that was mm -hmm. in 1999. And that was literally my only mission was that no woman should go through this experience like I did and feel alone. And here I was, you know, 13 years later and it hadn't changed. And then as I started to do the research, I found that not only had it not changed, but that maternal death was increasing in the U.S. And so now we are... Um, I think it's increased three times um, what it was in the last 20 years. And we have um, African-American women are three to four times more likely to die. Um, obviously, racism is probably the main reason for that. I've seen but, some information around that, that due to old, but not just not really talked about beliefs really old beliefs about race, right, the races, which we wouldn't say that anymore, but um, toughness and just not believing, not just ingrained, not very, I'm not saying this very clearly at the moment, but um, that there's just some old attitudes and beliefs that haven't been disputed, discouraged about different people's ability to handle pain and when they're sick and when they don't feel well. And it's not always intentional, but it's there. Well, there's definitely, in addition to racism, there's sexism. I mean, I can't yeah. tell you, and I'm sure you, you know, you've had children, you know, you have a male doctor and maybe not always a male doctor, but more often than not a male doctor who is telling you how you should feel when you're pregnant, which is crazy. They're, mm, they're never yeah. going to know how you should feel when you're pregnant. And in, even, a, even a female doctor, if she's not gone through a, a complicated pregnancy, is not going to know. So there's that, yeah. that just that disconnect of not really understanding, you know, that you should be believed that this is your first pregnancy, but you should be believed by when you say something isn't right. And somebody should not just go, oh, well, she's female. Oh, well, she's pregnant. Oh, well, she's, you know, it's her first baby. She doesn't know. I mean, because mm -hmm. those are those are risky assumptions. Those endanger women's lives. And that is what we're trying to change. Yeah. 
So you started when you were starting the film. Yeah. And you you said you realized that as you're going through it, because these were traumas these women went through, and it brings up that trauma. And so, as you said, like it can spur these actual physical responses to remembering that trauma. And you're wanting to help them not create harm. Right. And you realized you wanted help. So how how did you and Jen work with that? Or what did you do? Were you able to yeah. continue? What did that look like? Well, and, and I should add that um, this whole time, in addition to doing these things, both Jen and I have had real jobs and and families to raise and and relationships to manage. And um, so we've been doing this, you know, in the weekends, in the early morning, in the late night, when we can ever find time. So that slows things down. And then there's funding. And funding was, you know, hard to come by. We had an Indiegogo campaign and we were raised, we raised about $13,000 total. And we tried to make sure to honor those um, contributions by, um, we had survivors forums with um, various nursing organizations and we've spoken with survivors. But like you said, um, there were stops and starts because we were figuring it out as we went and we're not doctors and we're not psychiatrists. And we've talked about going back to school to become those things so that we could be better equipped. And Hmm. I mean, I'm 59 years old and I'm still looking at nursing school and thinking that could happen. I could do that (laughs) because I feel like... Because I, I have this imposter syndrome still that I fight with every day that I'm trying to, you know, convince myself, you can you can say this, your voice matters. So I wouldn't say that we've coped with it, you know, greatly or perfectly. I would say that we have worked through it. We have mm. recognized where we're misstepping and stopped and, re, you know, redirected. But um, we really started to pick up steam I guess when I hit the 20th anniversary of the Preeclampsia Foundation, I just, something got into me. I think between that and COVID, because, um, you know, as I mentioned, my mother died, um, not young, but younger than I felt she should have gone. She was 69 and I'm 59. So in my head, I'm like, I have 10 years to get it all done. I mean, Mm -hmm. if I get more time, that's bonus. But, you know, for me, that's my window. And I don't have time to mess around anymore. So I'm going to do my my memoir. So I started writing the book and it's very cathartic. Um, And it was amazing the detail of things I could remember from back in the day. But then I also got to the point where I was just about ready to hit publish. And I thought, this is all about me. And this topic is not all about me. So I, again, went online and went to this group, a Facebook group that I I'm a big fan of, which is a maternal near miss survivors group. And uh, I'm happy to share the link to that when I can find it. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah. So um, they, I just posted, I said, Hey, I'm, you know, I'm writing this book. Uh, if you are interested in sharing your story, I would love to share your story. And what I'm doing is putting for every year of my story. So it's chronological. There's a story of another woman that starts the chapter. So I wanted to make sure I had diversity in terms of race and diversity in terms of geographic, um, where they lived, uh, diversity in terms of personal experience. And then um, 
And I just put out a call and I swear to God, within a day, I had 60 women who wanted to talk to me and I was absolutely flooded. Hmm. And so I started, you know, doing that, you know, interviewing these women. And I went one day, it was crazy. I interviewed like five women in a row. And by the third or fourth woman, I swear to God, I said this, I'm so embarrassed, but she said something about when, you know, when she woke up from her coma and I sort of went, you're the third person today that's told me that she woke up two months later from her coma. And I thought, what is wrong with me? You know, that I'm normalizing that experience and Hmm. minimizing it for this woman who's, you know, she doesn't know that she's not the only woman in the world who's, you know, was in a coma for two months. So um, then I, you know, again, had to sort of stop myself and, and then I got breakthrough COVID. So that really, really slowed me down. But I realized I needed to do a lot more self-care, like a mm. lot more self-care because I was committed to doing this, but it was not a sprint. It's not even a marathon. It's like a ultra marathon. Mm. And if I'm going to get through it and finish this book, which I'm really close to finishing, um, I need to take care of myself, you know, like sleep, eat well, get yeah. fresh air and the things I wasn't necessarily doing because I was so driven to get this done. And so now I think I finished 13 interviews and we we share them on our Unexpected Project Facebook page. Which we also want the link for. Which I will get you the link for. <laughs> and um, And they always create good, which is so uh, validating. And I try and share that with the women that I speak with, because again, they're women who have been told not to tell their story, not to talk about this. And so um, quite often they will say, oh, I mean, this is to a woman. They have said to me, as I've interviewed them, how do you, how do you manage with this? This must be really hard for you. So there's this really great sense of, of, sisterhood and empathy and understanding that this is hard work that I really appreciate. And then um, I say, look, I'm going to just type what you say. I'm writing it down first person. I type really fast because as you know, I play piano. So I type pretty fast. So I just put them on speaker and I type and type and type. And then I send them the raw copy. And I said, now three things could happen here. One is you could decide you don't want any part of this. You want to step away. This is too much for you. And that has happened um, probably 30% of the time. Now, the second is you can look at it and say, I, you know, I'm not ready. I want to share it, but not yet. And there, there's some women who are 15 years out who are not ready, who've read their mm. story and said, I'm not ready. Um, and then I ask them to correct any errors. We obviously take out anything that would create any kind of legal liability for us particularly if they're, you know, upset with a doctor or hospital. And then um, we share it. We promise that this is their story. They own the copyright and it'll get shared on our Facebook page. And we we include a picture of them healthy so people can see that they are nice, normal, healthy women and a picture of them ill so they can Mm -hmm. see kind of the... the, And um, one great, great story I have to share with you is um, there's this lovely woman who lives in, in a... Illinois. And she insisted, she was like insisting, I need to share my story with you. And I was kind of like, you know, I've got 63 people on this list and you're like 46 and I'm at number 13. So it's going to be a while, but she was just such 
so determined. So finally, I just was like, you know what? Let's do this. Let's we'll, we'll, we'll do this interview. So we did the interview on Thursday. I got her copy back to her on Friday. She got me the edits back Friday night. And I said, if you can get me pictures, we can post this now. We can do this. You know, so it was within 24 hours. We got it up. And the next day, I kid you not, a woman responded to the story. She said, my daughter is in exactly this situation in exactly this hospital right now. And um, the situation was that the woman in, uh, who shared her story had um, a horrible hemorrhage. She was bleeding to the point where she was sitting in the toilet and having to flush the toilet because the blood was filling up the bowl and it was going to spill over. So she was flushing the toilet. And when the EMT arrived, he didn't believe her that she was bleeding because the blood, there wasn't a lot of blood to be seen. And so he called it in and was like, "Yeah, there's some blood. And she was like, there's a lot of blood and um, had to really advocate for herself. She had to go from a rural hospital to a mid-level hospital. Then she went to the University of Iowa. And it was not until six weeks later, I think, that she was really feeling back to herself, but she survived. And this mother had a daughter at that mid-level hospital who had been hemorrhaging and she was, you know, she didn't know what to think. Was she going to live? Was she going to die? Was she, what was next? What should we be doing? Hmm. And so I was, we were both just like, we had like chills kind of like, this is a, like a God moment for us where we feel like, okay, this is why we're doing this because hmm. simply by sharing your story, you are giving another woman or family, you know, something to hang on to, some insight into what they should be doing, what they could be doing, where things went wrong in the system and how they can advocate for their loved one. And that, you know, gets us back up and going again. When we, Because there are times, I swear, I, that I cry. I get off the phone and I just cry and think, what am I doing? You know, why am I, this is rough, you know, but at the same time, it ha it hasn't changed. It's not going to change unless we do something about it. So you answered a question I was going to ask. I was just about to ask you, like, what have you learned about the power of these women being able to finally share their stories, whether or not they're published? Mm -hmm. And what have you learned about sharing your story? I think you just said it so well. I can't even repeat it verbatim, but it was, I mean, it sounds like it's them being able to hear women who've been through it who haven't been able to speak it. Well, we've been, yeah, else, we've been talking ahead. about it. We want, we're going to, we want to do a social media campaign because obviously I don't have capacity to share everybody's stories. And at mm. some point we're going to need to expand this so that it um, grows. And um, I'm sure you're aware of the social media campaign. It gets better. Yes. So, yes. so that's the model really that we want is to have, a, um, you know, essentially a YouTube video where women submit it more men because we have widowers and parents and best friends who reach out to us. Um, they say, you know, my name is Ann Garrett. And in 1996, I coded on the operating room table and, you know, think, think, thankfully I was in the right place at the right time. I got great care. I survived. I'm a survivor of maternal near miss. And I count because the CDC is not counting near misses carefully. Mm. So okay. we don't know how many of us, we say 56,000 a year, but we don't actually know that, you know. And by sharing that story, I think um, 
you give other people permission to share their own story and to say, you know, it's not all unicorns and roses and it, it can be. And I, you know, quite honestly, a very good friend who had all four children at home in the bathtub, I, I thought it was amazing. And I was so happy for her. And I wish that for every woman. And I do not wish to be known though. I'm sure I am as, you know, the woman who's made, um, you know, pregnancy a scary thing. But let's be real, you know, if you live in a third world country, pregnancy is a very scary thing. You know, one doctor I know said it is the closest a woman ever comes to death is when she's giving birth. I remember stories of the <laughs> pioneer ancestors going across. Right? You know, we are not that many generations removed from where we really do not have modern medicine. Right. But to hear that there's still so many challenges with with noting, diagnosing, recognizing preeclampsia, and then you listed some other, you said hypotensive challenges. Yeah. Yeah, hy- Pretty, yeah. Hyper, hyper rather, hypertension. Um, well, hypo I, is not good either. I know it's not good either. I, <laughs> I tend to be a little hypotensive, which is low blood pressure. Right. Um, I'm, I'm listening to you and I realize that you, it sounds like you have some ideas and things. And my hope is that you know, that there'll be some people who get to hear this, the, this podcast that would be very interested in helping, you know, the Unexpected Project grow and develop. Mm-hmm. What, what would you like, do you have, have you and Jen have a vision of like what, like you said, the, a, a campaign, but I think it's an awareness, much like it gets better. Do you have an idea of like how you would like this to grow, to influence, to advocate? Sure. I actually do. I have a very clear vision. So I would love to hear it. It probably helps. <laughs> I would love to finish the documentary. Mm. I would love that to be something that, um, you know, goes to Sundance and gets awards and people say, oh, you know, there are some good um, documentaries out there and, and, but at the same time, we would love to finish that. And then I, with the book, what I want to do, I jokingly call this my couch to couch tour, though. I have a really wonderful friend, Ellie, who's a mentor who told me that I could actually live, you know, stay in a hotel. I didn't have to sleep on someone's couch. But the plan was to go from city to city um, with some of the local survivors. We would work with the local hospitals or universities and set up a day where survivors could come. They could share their stories. In, it really helps the nurses and the doctors as well because they have their own traumas. Mm-hmm. We've watched this happen, um, and it's a good education for them to know that that some woman remembers 15 years ago when you said something to her when she was going under that was probably not the right thing to say. You know, it's a really valuable insight. So it's very educational both ways. We would want to make sure those women have support in that in that day. And that they would then become a resource locally for that hospital when somebody, you know, comes in and is in that crisis. They can say, hey, I know a group locally that you can talk with who have women who've been through a postpartum hemorrhage or who've been through cardiomyopathy, who had preeclampsia, so that you can talk to somebody who gets it because it's just like any kind of complication of life. You know, the people that really get it are people who walk that same path. So then... That Couch to Couch tour would go all over the U.S. um, And we would do the social media campaign, you know, 
I haven't decided if we're calling it hush, which I kind of like, or if we're calling it I count, I think, Mm. because uh, the hush part is like, you're not supposed to talk about it. I have a woman who shared her story, really powerful story about systemic failure. She was perfectly fine. There was some kind of problem. They didn't get all of the um, placenta material when they um, delivered her baby. And then she had just horrific complications for a year that completely Mm -hmm. debilitated her. And she shared her story and it was too much and her family felt uncomfortable with it. And we had to, you know, respect that and take it down. Hmm. And the reality is that's the sort of thing we want to change is we want women to be able to go into pregnancy and have those hard conversations with their doctors. I mean, I lost my mom to breast cancer. Every month I do my, I mean, my self-examination, I get my mammogram every year and you would never say to a woman, don't check your breasts because you might find cancer. Mm. You would never say that. But yet we say to pregnant women, you don't need to know that, honey. We don't want to scare you. You know, that's just crazy. They need mm. to, you know, talk to women like they're the intelligent adults who are having children that they are. And they need to have information about what can go wrong and what to do when that happens. Not because they're frightening them, but because we're educating them. Yeah. And I think that's my goal is that, you know, every woman goes into birth informed, you know, fully informed about what could be, what could happen and how, what to do in that event. And there's some great resources for that. Doulas are amazing. Sorry, my dog has decided to bark now. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and it reminds me, I, I myself, I didn't think about this much. I really don't think about it much until you just start talking. And I'm like, I'm remembering after my first baby was born, um, everything had seemed fine. I went home and about a week after, a week, week and a half after I came home, I started to feel very feverish and kind of shaky. And I remember passing a bit of a clot, not big, huge, nothing like what you're described, what you've described. But I ended up calling my doctor and they said, oh, you may have had like a little tiny piece of your placenta still in you. And they called up um, antibiotics for me, which amazingly did the thing. But when we talk about not telling people and I told somebody who I thought could come and help me out because my husband wasn't home at that moment, couldn't get home very quickly. And I'd ask that person to come by and help me. They ended up coming after my husband arrived. They didn't, I, I don't think they understood. I just don't think it's something, even yeah. those of us who've gone through things that are fairly minor, yeah. it wasn't continually bleeding, but it was clearly an infection. Yeah. Um, so I well, think this sepsis is, is actually, sepsis is what the, um, the medical term for that is, and right. infection. And it's actually a, a relatively common cause of maternal death near myth. Oh, so, I'm sure. Yeah, without antibiotics, that would have been bad news. Yeah, or 100 years ago, right? Oh, well, yeah. Like sure. we were talking about. Yeah. My inner moms. <clears throat> so you said the, the fire came back into around the 20th anniversary of preeclampsia foundation founding. And then with, I think you were saying around COVID, the time of COVID. And there's, you mentioned to me a little bit more, there's another reason why you really want to finish the film. You want to talk about that? Um, well, I, I feel 
a moral obligation to several people who have been involved and who support me um, back in, I think it was 2012, I was connected with a family who were the parents of a woman named Shelly of Bridgewater, who I'm going to get Terry. Shelly um, was an Iowa uh, farm girl who was a school teacher, and she died a month, not a month, a few days after she had her baby. I want to say a few days. It's been a while, but she died. Um, and I saw myself in Shelly. You know, I'm from a, my family's like father's like fifth generation Iowa farmer. I was a school teacher and it just really struck me um, when I talked to her mother, her mother was very much like, you know, what can we do? And I was like, oh, I'm trying to like leave this work behind. And then this woman calls me and it really just struck me, you know, that I, that I needed to help her. So originally when I started writing the book, I called it Saving Shelly because I wanted to do something to save future Shelly's. Um, so I feel an obligation to her and her husband, John, and sadly, John died of a massive heart attack when he was 59. And so I feel even more of an obligation to him because um, he his advocacy raised so much money for the University of Iowa and did so much and such a good man. And then along the way, um, you know, there's the the Warners and the Bridgewater family there in Iowa. Then there's this family um surrounding a, a woman who died named uh, Christy Rubino. She was actually a roller derby girl. Her name was Raging Ruby. And the family held a fundraiser in their town and um, it's in the Syracuse area of New York. And they did a lot. And I just feel, you know, such a um, obligation to them to finish what I started, what I told them I was going to do. And then um, I... I reconnected with a man who lost his wife, Todd Hyden, who's down in Orlando. And he's just been an extraordinary friend to me. And um, I just feel this obligation to, to do what I said I was going to do, to finish what I started. And um, for them, but also because we all have kids who are going to have babies at some point. And we are you know, my oldest is 36, um, but preeclampsia goes through the sons as much as it goes through the daughters. So my children, when they have children, are going to be, their partners are going to be at risk. Todd has two daughters. Um, and we just talked about that, about how, you know, what are we going to say to them? I mean, what's Todd going to say to his daughter about why her mom died and why she's not going to die, you know? And I think that's where <laughs> where the drive comes from mm. is that um you know I want to make sure I want to make sure that this doesn't happen to to those kids and to those people that I love you know? yeah and you so. care you said it uh, so <laughs> like oh so early on like I don't want someone to go through this again you know, yeah we we have here in the U.S. No one. You said no woman should go through this alone. Um, well, and no, I mean, you said. <laughs> well, you know, quite honestly, most of the most of the maternal deaths are preventable. A lot of the crises are preventable, and so that's that's where the moral outrage comes from. Is that mm -hmm. you know, this is not okay. You know, we are um, 
most affluent nation in the world, and we are ranked 56th in terms of maternal mortality. We're behind Iraq. We're behind mm-hmm. Afghanistan. We're behind Estonia. It's appalling. And the fact that it's not getting better is... The fact that you said it's gone up three times since yeah. you went through it. Yeah. And so, I mean, um, there's a lot of wonderful advocates that have come out in the last... Well, since we started the Unexpected Project, there's been, you know, I, I wrote an article for Huffington Post in 2013 called, you know, one of the things we can do is, you know, just share a woman's story. Um, they talk about how can you save a life? And it's like, well, if we just talk about it, that would be a start. But now we have people talking about it. We have really great advocates out there. Um, Charles Johnson, who lost his wife, Kira Johnson done a phenomenal job raising awareness and getting legislation passed in California to make changes. And um, he's, you know, he's a great advocate. And I know he's, his website is for Kira for Moms. And they talk about how, you know, what am I going to say to my kids about what I did to make this, you know, better? Yeah. And I think that's what drives all of us. So there's him and, and, um, uh, just the women who are brave enough to share these stories because because we're not supposed to talk about bad things, you know, particularly not gynecological bad things. Not gynecological. And there was something you said earlier, and this may not be exactly how you said it, but I I think there's sometimes there's a bit of shame. Like I should have been able to have prevented this. You said you can't eat anything to keep it from happening. And oh yeah, you know, I had a family member say to me, well, you know, you are a little overweight. That must be why you got preeclampsia. I'm like, no, that is not why I got preeclampsia. And, you know. No. And that is, that kind of shaming is is not helpful. Even you know? even in, in our popular culture, I can think of you and I, I know we've off off this show discussed that there are certain celebrities and people who've who've mentioned it, but in pa- almost in passing, but not in a not always. Maybe sometimes a couple of them have, but not always in a in a full way. Um, and so it, it's heard about like there was a problem, there was a you, yeah. you know there were complications, and unless you know where to look, you don't really understand what they're talking about. Well, there have been. Um you know, like I said, there's been a shift in the conversation, which is great. I really attribute that to ProPublica, which who did a, a phenomenal article, a series of articles called Lost Moms, really, really good. And they won some awards for that work as they should have done. And yeah. um, there's some celebrities who have been and had articles written about their experience. Um, Beyonce springs to mind and Serena Williams as a phenomenal uh, advocate for, you know, she, she had to personally intervene. She had to correct the care she was getting because of her um, personal clotting to the clotting issue that she was aware of. And she had to make them aware of it. And the Mm -hmm. fact that you have a woman in crisis correcting the medical profession is crazy. You should have somebody, you know, by your side, who's there for that. But that was certainly the case with me back when I had my near miss, they came in 12 hours later and they said, you get to go home tomorrow. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I get to go home tomorrow. I had, I died 12 hours ago and I'm connected to every possible wire you've got available for me. What are you talking about? And they said, oh, well, 
doctor says you can go home tomorrow. You're, you know, you've recovered dramatically. And of course that week later I was back in the hospital. So I had to advocate for myself. I've seen women have to advocate for themselves. The woman who was bleeding out, she had to advocate for herself. But celebrities, I mean, I would love it if, if, you know, Alison Felix, who's an Olympian, would reach out to us or Beyonce or Serena. And, or any of the know, other ones who are out there or who any of the this. I mean, Please contact Ann Garrett and the I mean, even project. Like yes. Laura Bush and Jane Seymour and um, Deborah Norville. A number of these people have, have mm. had complications and have spoken about those complications in the press. But it, in terms of being a champion for the cause, you know, um, I'm not going to say they haven't been a champion because I think they have been in their own way. Kim Kardashian, she had a near, you know, she had a a pretty scary experience. So um, it's not a pretty thing to talk about and it's not a pretty thing to be associated with. And that's part of the reason why when we do our stories, why we ask the women to share the most beautiful picture they've got. We're like, we want one that you are just vibrant and full of life and the best best you you can be because I don't want anybody looking at that and going wow you know look at her she you know she obviously deserved to get sick because she's overweight or she's black or she's too young or she's too old I mean I've heard these things from people who just say the worst possible things you know oh she has too many children or she's a Mormon or you know it's like what nobody is responsible for bad things happening to them you know true so true. Nobody makes these things happen to them. So any oh. celebrities out there who want to be <laughs> part of the cause, who want to be part of the promotion and is willing to hear from you, which leads me to two things. First, I know we've talked about a couple of resources that I can put in the show notes. And are there any like top three to five things that uh, books or websites that you recommend if somebody, both in a preventative way and or a, um, I mean, your, your focus is the unexpected, like the residual, the 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 after, the post, yeah, delivery um, challenges. Any well, we want we want those women to be, you know, to know that they're not alone, um, and we want to help them recover from that damage. But ultimately, our goal is to, you know, prevent these things from happening and believe that's through education. So, I mean, we're developing a website for the Unexpected Project that essentially will be a hub for all of these complications. Um, There's some great organizations working on individual issues. And Preeclampsia is a phenomenal website. The Preeclampsia Foundation, of course, has a good website. Um, Amniotic Fluid Embolism has a good website. So our goal is to really direct people to those places, to not be the be-all and end-all for them, but rather just to be a central clearinghouse and to get people. I mean, I would love it if people bought the book and helped us, you know, take the tour. I would love to stay in a hotel rather than on a couch, but, you know, I'll do what it takes to get it out there. You come um, to my city, I'll let you stay with me. I'll change my room back into a guest room. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's quite honestly that simple. I don't think it's that, you know, I think I was joking earlier, but it's not really a joke. If I could just quit my day job and do this full time, it'd be much more efficient. But mm-hmm. we haven't we haven't really figured out how to do that yet. And so so um, we have the Preeclampsia Foundation site. 
the amniotic embolism site. Um, your book is coming out when you're going to finish it, and which I, we, I definitely want the update on that so I can tell listeners when that's available. Um, and you're working on a website for the unexpected project. Yeah. And we have, um, I mean, I have my own personal website because I'm available to come and talk to people. Um, happy to do that. It's um, okay. I will. It's a I will very neat. I, yeah, I, I speak at conferences and, um, and really, honestly, um, beyond preeclampsia, beyond maternal death, beyond all that, I think my biggest message is that, that you can make a difference. You know, one person can make a difference. When we, when we started the Preeclampsia Foundation, my co-founder, Joan, was saying, you know, if we could just help one woman, it would be worth it. Mm-hmm. And, and when we look back, it's pretty humbling to see that we've helped so many women, just the, you know, the ripple, the women I helped, helped other women who helped other women who helped other women and men, because, you know, this doesn't just affect the women, of course, you know, like my friend Todd, you know, he's 11 years out. Yeah. Yeah. He's raising two kids on his own. I love that that image, the ripple effect, because it's so true. We think sometimes, oh, I just did one, but it's, it's exponentially so many more people than it is. It is. And I think just letting people know that you, that they're heard, that you're, you know, that you're a safe place to talk. Um, You know, I continue to need that from my friends and my community. And so then I can turn around and, you know, replenish myself and then turn back around and help the other people uh, move things forward. But I guess I don't, I want people to understand that there is no confidence driving this. This is not coming from a place of ego and, um, and like, I can, you know, I can save the world, but rather from a place of like, shit, <laughs> I have no choice but to do this. Yeah. I would so much rather be doing, you know, so many other things, you know, that are far less dramatic, but I just don't feel like I have a choice. Mm. So. So if people want to reach out to you, I will put your, unless you want to say it now, but I will do both. <laughs> do both, like what your website or how to get a hold of you, but I will definitely have that listed in the show notes. Um, and I just thank you so much for coming on the show today and talking about this and giving us a look into something that has affected so many women who may not be aware, like myself, that, oh, yeah, that could have been a problem, but also probably know somebody who's been through it and may not have um, been vocal about it, not to bring that up and re-traumatize them, but just so they can understand more about like how serious this was. And it's so, and it can be uncomfortable to share. And I appreciate you taking the time to share that, all these stories that. um, Yeah. I think if I were to ask, I mean, I appreciate you having me. Thank you. It's really (laughs) lovely to talk to you, but I would say if there's any like homework for your audience, I would actually invite you to ask people that you know to tell you about their, if they had complications in in childbirth, if they would talk to you about it, because um, I'd be willing to bet no one's ever asked them that question. No one's ever given them permission to share that. And that alone is such a huge gift to let somebody know you're there for them. And sometimes if people say no, maybe even just saying, just know that 
I appreciate, and I understand that was hard. Sometimes just acknowledging people, that for, like you're saying, some women can't really say it out loud, but just to even say, I just want you to know that I have no idea what that was like. And I just appreciate yep. so much you're still here. Right. Absolutely. Because it's, yeah. Oh. Heavy, heavy stuff. I know. I'm it's, sorry. <laughs> oh, no. I, I like you. I'm a person who often has people talk with me about things similar to to this. We, You and I have both been through some life experiences where we have walked a family member through through dying and through some challenging health health times and it's it's not easy but i think it's it's such a gift to be able to yeah i was gonna say it's such a gift it's such an honor to be um, invited to be there okay if it's not comfortable for somebody to to be able to hear that that's why i think too it's 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 also valuable just to say i i just want you to know that I had no idea. So if somebody was listening to this today and they're like, oh my gosh, I did not realize. I don't, I would never want somebody to beat themselves up about it. But just to say, if if you want to talk about it, I'm here for you or I love you. And I had no idea. Yeah. I think that's. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I totally respect um, the privacy of people to handle this, you know, the way that is best for them. If they want to share or don't want to share, that's okay. But and and that, that maybe they can send uh, offer their friend if they don't know these resources, the Facebook yeah. groups, um, because um, the Unexpected Project. You guys have a Facebook group. Yes, we do. We have and you said the Preeclampsia Foundation has a Facebook group. Well, there was another one. Um, I wrote it down. I don't have it here. You were saying the End Preeclampsia. There's a group called End Preeclampsia, which is got a phenomenal Facebook group. Maternal. Um, well, I'll send you the list, the link. Oh, yeah. So there's a number, number of Facebook groups. So there's a number of Facebook groups, and that's probably where you're going to find the most um, activity. Um, and then there's, a, you know, all these different nonprofits working in this space. The Four Cure for Moms doing great stuff. Um, Amniotic Fluid Embolism Group is doing good stuff. There's a group called Save the Mommies, which is for postpartum cardiomyopathy, mm. which is a Fancy way of saying heart attack, postpartum, your heart fails because... Yeah, it can happen. It's a lot of stress to have a baby. It is a lot of stress. And women (laughs) don't often know they have heart issues. It's not always exactly diagnosed during pregnancy. There's Pregnancy is an interesting time for a woman's body. So It is. Your body changes dramatically and and it's okay to, to not be beautiful. One of my favorite articles I wrote for the Huffington Post was called... um, it's like, um, I hate you people. It was about People Magazine because they talk about getting your body back. And I'm just like, you didn't lose your body to begin with, okay? And nobody pops back into a size four pair of jeans. I mean, if they do, they're, you know, they're the ones who are unusual, not you. Most of us walk around looking like we've had a baby for a good six weeks after we've had a baby. Yeah. That's just normal. So yeah. just normalizing the, the ugly part of childbirth yeah. would be helpful. Well, I'm going to wrap this up with just um, one question. What's one piece of advice or what's one thing you really would like our listeners to know? Could be from Unexpected Project, could be from your work and creating a nonprofit or just 
about life? Um, I guess the one piece of advice I would have is that um, doing something, anything, whether it be starting a diet or exercising or changing a job or starting a nonprofit can be scary because there's a risk that you're going to fail. But it's okay to be scared. Just just do it. Just walk through it. You know, live with the fear, but just do it because it's not going to change unless you do. So take a chance. <laughs> take a chance. I love it. Thank you again. It's yep. always a pleasure. And and hopefully in the future, when you're on the Couch to Couch tour and things are going along with the documentary, we'll get to have you back. That would be awesome. I may um, be in your couch. So. Maybe my couch. Maybe it'll be in person in our coming house. To a couch, coming to a couch near you soon. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Thanks. All right. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.